Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to our Q&A. This is TruthQuest podcast, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says and how we can apply that to our lives, that we might be able to look at His Word, see what is said, and believe what God has told us through His Word, approaching the Word of God to find out what we believe. Now, this Q&A is connected to our last study. If you go to our study this evening, you can go any place on YouTube and ask a question connected to that study. Go on any video, ask a question connected to the study, put the word question in front of it, and then write out your question so that it makes sense. And on our next live Q&A, we will look at those questions and answer them. So we have our first question today that comes from last weekend's study. And that is, what is the difference between a false teacher, a false teacher and a false teacher? Well, it's supposed to be, what is the difference between a false teacher and a true, uh, and, a, and a, a false teaching? Oh, what is the difference between a false teacher and a false teaching? Okay, I guess it's correct. All right, so what is the difference between a false teacher and a false teaching? So a false teaching would be something that is generally accepted as not being true, by Christianity as a whole. There are in-house discussions. You can discuss pre, post, or mid-tribulation. And I always get annoyed when someone throws around the false teaching word for that. Because no matter what, we believe in a rapture. The Bible tells us that we are going to be resurrected, that we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and that we will forever be with the Lord. And um, it is... (laughs) It's always interesting to me when people will take just, a, we all believe in the rapture, but we believe them in them happening at different times and in, uh, in at different times, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, and we end up calling someone a false teacher. That's not a false teacher. I don't even know that that's, that's not even a false teaching. Yes, one of them is correct, but it is not generally agreed upon by most of Christendom. And when that is the case and someone begins to teach something like God wants you rich, we can call that a false teaching. It wasn't something taught in church history. It wasn't something anybody looked at. It was a movement that began under the prosperity movement um, back in the early 1900s, and it developed into what is known today, and we would call that a false teaching. A false teacher is someone who teaches false teaching. It's not just someone who happens to be wrong about something, but it's someone that's teaching false teaching. And we would call them a false teacher. And I wanted to uh, be sure that I could make clarity about that. In our study this weekend, Jesus called out the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites and went over several reasons why they were hypocrites. They loved to wear wrong, long robes. They loved uh, the, them calling them rabbi, rabbi in the marketplace. And so false teachers today should be called out. We should call out different groups that teach false teachings. And even sometimes by name, when it is absolutely necessary to call someone out by name. All right, so thank you very much for that question. Uh, This is our TruthQuest podcast. You can subscribe anywhere that you get podcasts from. If you have a question, write the word question, and then write out your question, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. And from the Bible study that we're having tonight out of the book of Galatians, we're talking about how to use the freedom that we have in Christ to be able to edify ourselves that when we face difficulties, we'll win instead of losing for them. We're also going to continue to talk about the false teaching of grace plus works. Jesus plus anything is a false teaching, and Paul makes that abundantly clear in the passage that we will be studying tonight in Galatians 5. I think it's 1 through 6. So if you have any questions about that study, you can do it while the Bible study is going taking place. Go to YouTube and click on any video, ask your question, make sure it says what you want it to say, and then go ahead and submit it, and we'll pick it up on Saturday, Lord willing. All right, so um, good to see you guys here. Good to have you here. Let's go ahead and and take a look at our first question. So we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Uh, Good to see you, Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says, question, uh, Malachi 3, 16 through 18, Book of Remembrance, is this just for Old Testament saints or does it apply to us as well? 
do you get extra reward if you're written in it? The Book of Remembrance. All right, well, let's go ahead and go there. Uh, let's go to Malachi. And um, what was it? Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Malachi 3, uh, 16. There we go. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this. Um, then they then they feared the Lord. Give me something here. I don't know why that's there. I got a problem here. All right. There we go. Uh, then they feared the Lord, spoke often to one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that throat though, and that and that thought upon his name. So for those who feared the Lord and thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them, as man spareth his own son and saveth him. They shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that seventh, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Sorry, it's not the normal, this is the NASB, it's not the normal, um, actually it's, um, is it the AV? Let me see if I can, yeah, yeah I'm going to need to uh, need to change that later. All right, so obviously I got something new going on here that I need to work out. Um, so the Book of Remembrance, um, I cannot remember exactly uh, my studying on the Book of Remembrance from just reading it. And I'd like to take a look at it a little bit more in context. Let me just see if I can get there. And um, let's go back again and just go back a few verses and see if we can uh, find it in context. Oftentimes, that can help us to understand it. So let's go all the way back to 13. Yeah, let's start in 13. Your words have been shout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Um, yea, have ye have said... It is in vain to serve God. All right. Um, all right. So I need to do some more work on, I need to do some more work on that. All right. Let's just go back here. I need to do some more work on that uh, before we start using that. I'll look them up on my iPhone like we used to do for now. Uh, sooner or later, I'll get all the kinks out of being able to go and look scriptures up and read them in an easy way. I'm working on that. So I'm not sure. I, I would say that the book of remembrance looks to me like it's something that God writes for all believers, that he remembers us. And um, I'm just not super confident in that answer. All right, fact check these hands, but I appreciate you bringing it up. I'll take a look at it and see if I can remember or ask me again a, a little bit here, a little bit later on. But it looks like it's the book of remembrance in the sense that God remembers us. And that means that you would be in it and I would be in it as well. All right, that's what it looks like. Although again, I reserve the right to be wrong about that just because I need to go back and look at it in, in context a little bit better. And um, we could, well, let's go ahead and bring this on. We, we may go and read it in the um, King James instead of the AV authorized version, which is what I was trying to read it in. All right, so we have a question from Jari. Uh, question, is God still creating from nothing today besides reproductive process the fish in Jonah 117, it says, and God prepared a fish. Is God still creating or has he finished? Thank you. Um, something I haven't really thought about, Jari. Uh, God prepared a fish. God prepared a tree. God prepared a worm. All of those are in the book of Jonah. So um, I don't know. Second stumper in a row. Uh could God still create today? Yeah, I guess God could. Is there anything that says that God finished? I think um, and God and God said it was good. Uh, is there something in Genesis where it talks about God finishing creation? Uh, it it may um, Let's, yeah, let's take a look at this. Let me go ahead and bring you up here. Let's take a look at this. Um, it says, this is um, Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were all, the host of them were finished, 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from his work, which God had created and made. Um, so I think that there is a sense, Jari, in which we could say that creation is completed. Does that mean that God couldn't prepare a fish, like create, to create a fish? Was this a fish God prepared for Jonah? Was this a fish God created for him? Was this a worm God created or was for him specifically? Or was this a worm God prepared for him? Did God create a plant or was it just prepared for him? Um, I would say I would probably lean towards God is no longer creating. Although questions like that are good stumper questions there, Jari. All right. So um, we have another question from Andre. Andre, good to see you. Andre says, um, is the Apostle Paul's prophecy in Romans 11, 25 through 26 referring to the end of the tribulation? All right, let's go ahead and go to Romans. Romans 11, 25 and 26. 11, let me get there. All right. So Romans 11, 25, and 26. All right, so I'm there. Let me go ahead and take a look here, Andre. Get you up on the screen. It says, brethren, it says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I should have known, noticed the, this address. And so all of Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Yes, um, Andre, I believe that this is at the end of the tribulation period. Or maybe we could say, yeah, maybe we could say instead in the middle of the tribulation period. Um, because the Antichrist says the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation period and then Israel realizes what they've done. And I think it's then that they are restored, that Zechariah 12.10 comes to pass. And God will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem, and they will look at me who they pierce, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. And again, we see the complexity of God there. He says, me that they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for the only son. And um, I believe that that is what it's talking about. And the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Would that then be the middle of the tribulation period or would it be the beginning? Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And the passage here in Romans says, I do not be, uh, desire, I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery. So this is a mystery, right? lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So those are the two places that that term, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, is used. And Israel took control of Jerusalem in 1973. They're gaining more and more control of East Jerusalem even as we speak now. And we have the Temple Mount, that is under, I don't know if it's under Jordanian control today. I think it's still under Jordanian control, Palestinian control. So it's close. We are close to that place where we will see these things coming to pass. I think it's the end as in the last seven year period. Is it the very end of the tribulation period? No, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle of it. And then remember the dragon turns and attacks the nation of Israel and God supernaturally protects them um, through the tribulation period. All right, thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Psychman says, um, question, why would anyone believe the mistake was Zach not, oh, was Zach not Jer in Matthew 27, nine? was made by a subsequent translator and not Matthew himself. This is what adhering to biblical inerrancy demands. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a look at that. So I'm not sure, psych man, what you're talking about with the controversy over this statement. Matthew 27, 9. 
see if I can see if we can look at it and, and figure it out here. I'm going to bring that up on screen. Thank you. It's like, man, um, so 27.9 says, this was fulfilled, was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who pierced him, they, them of the children of Israel uh, priced. So I think, I see. So he says it's Jeremiah and the quote is from Zechariah. Is that right? I think that's, I think that's what we're getting here. Um, and if that is the case, yeah, there's a couple of different ways that you could look at it. Um, we know that a manuscript is not copied word for word. We believe by faith that God had preserved his word throughout the generations. We also know that we can compare manuscripts to manuscripts to be able to come up with the truth. And this is called textual criticism. And it's the art of being able to look at manuscripts and to come up with what the truth is. Certain manuscripts say one thing and certain manuscripts say another. And sometimes people have to make a decision and you've got to wonder, well, which one is correct? So did Matthew, as he wrote this, say Jeremiah and means Zechariah, or was it a mistake that was laid, made later on with manuscripts? And so your point is, is that inerrancy means that this had to be something that Matthew wrote down in order for inerrancy um, to get to us. And then people could start asking the question, well, then if it says Jeremiah, but it was um, Zechariah, which I'm hoping that that's what it is, then how do we know that we can even trust the scriptures? Because God didn't photocopy the scriptures down to us. He gave them to us and we have amazingly put the scriptures back together. Do you know also that you can go to uh, church fathers quoting the, the much of the New Testament and the Old Testament to be able to piece the Bible back together again? I think it's a true statement to say that we could piece the entire Bible together by church fathers' writings and be really confident in what was said. Um, are, there, are there spots that cause difficulties when it comes to what we would call the inerrancy of Scripture, that everything has to be written exactly the same way? And the answer to that is yes. In the Old Testament, there is a, there's a passage, and this is the first one that I found as a teenager. So I'm reading Chronicles and Kings, and they're telling the same account, and one of them says that 69,000 were killed, and the other one says 96,000 were killed. And I went to my pastor, and I said, what's the deal here? Because my understanding of inerrancy was that everything was said just the way it was, and then that we have no discrepancies when it comes to manuscripts. I didn't even understand manuscripts and, and comparing manuscripts. And he said to me, that's not the same account. And then I went back and I looked at it, and it was the same account. There's no way that it could be a different account. So somewhere along the line, somebody had to make a mistake and put 69 for 96. They made a mistake. And so then you say, well, how can we trust any of the scriptures? Because in Psalms 12, it says that God has preserved his word from generation to generation. And when you go back and you begin to look at the manuscript evidence and how it has been maintained, and um, for example, the book of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the book of Isaiah that we had that was 500 years newer than the Dead Sea Scrolls, and to see in that 500 years, nothing significantly significant changed, but there were changes. There were spelling changes and there were word changes that happened as they were copying it from generation to generation. So we don't believe that everybody that copied the New Testament copied it exactly right. And you see these discrepancies when you have a certain set of people who have, who come to the ESV Bible and they look at manuscripts and they say, we think it should say this. And then the New King James from the, I think it's the Texas Receptus, says, we think that it should say this. And so we're not saying that there's not some discrepancies or decisions that have to be made. We're saying that God has preserved his word and we can have confidence over what God's word says. And once you start diving in to the differences in the manuscripts, problems that people have when they are 
when they're putting together different versions of the Bible. And that's why it's valuable for us at times to read the different versions of the Bible because we can see them struggling with different words or struggling with the manuscript. One manuscript says this, another manuscript says that. The evidence seems to be the same. Well, which one is true? The real question is, is there a significant difference? And do these significant, do these differences, even the most significant of them, change the way that the Bible talks to us? And the answer to that is no. Even someone like Bart Ehrman, who is a New Testament scholar and understands this really well, and who is a critic of Christianity, he's not a Christian, and he's a critic of Christianity, will talk about our textual, uh, the textual criticism on the manuscripts of the Bible and how good they are. So um, I think that if that is indeed what you were talking about there, and um, I want to take, I want to go and take a look at it. I know there are a few places like this in the scriptures, and I don't believe it causes us a problem in not being able to trust the scriptures. We need to know that the Bible didn't float down from the sky all put together, that it came down to us through manuscripts, 5,000 plus, maybe close to 6,000 Greek manuscripts today that the Bible has come to us from and that men have compared scripture to scripture to be able to come down to what we have good confidence, and then that God has promised us that he has preserved his word from generation to generation, and we believe it. It was Billy Graham who was looking at some alleged discrepancies in the Bible, and he didn't know how to answer them. And the story is told that he went and set the Bible before God and said, I don't know how to answer these things, but I believe this is your word and I'm going to believe it. And God used him in such an incredibly powerful way. And um, I, there, there are, I don't know that any two manuscripts are the same, but the differences that we find, especially significant manuscripts, manuscripts that are long, but we're able to see where the mistakes are. And even though there are mistakes in those manuscripts, most of them are spelling our obvious errors that when we compare it to other manuscripts, we can see where the errors didn't take place. All right, psych man, I hope that answers your question. And um, I just kind of wanted to go on a little bit more about manuscript evidence because we can have confidence that God indeed has preserved his word from generation to generation. And so we have a question, another question from Fact Check These Hands. We'll go ahead and take that question. Fact Check These Hands asking about Ezekiel's wheel. This is Ezekiel 1 verse 4. So let me go ahead and pull that up. This is um, the chariot throne, right? Ezekiel 1, and then we come to verse 4. So, and this is the one that people will use with ancient aliens to talk about aliens appearing to them. So then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great crowd, uh, cloud with raging firing engulfed itself and the brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst, uh, like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also within it came the likeness of the living creatures. Uh, did I miss uh, the wheels? Did I miss, uh, I, well, I think I missed it. Um, but this is the, this is the, the chariot throne uh, that you see here and you see it in another place in scripture as well. And um, I think it's just a symbol of God on the throne and God's throne not necessarily being in one place. And I'm not sure I understand all of the symbolism uh, that you have here for the chariot throne. All right, let me see if that was the right. Um, oh, Ezekiel 1, 4 and 10, 5 through 20. All right, um, yeah, let's go ahead and look at 10, 5 through 20 and see if we can uh, see if we can find anything <clears throat> that makes that a little bit clearer. Um, all right, let's take a look at this. All right. And it says, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like a voice of the almighty God when he speaks. Then it happened when he commanded the men clothed in linen, taking fire among the wheels from among the cher uh, cherubim. And he went and he stood beside the wheels and the cherub stretched out the hand among the cherubim and the fire that was among the cherub and took some of it and put it into the hands of men who were clothed in linen, who took it out from the cherubim. 
All right, and let's just read the rest of it. Um, and appeared, and then cherubim appeared in fire, and of the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by the cherub, and another wheel by each of the cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of beryl and stone. Uh, all right, so again, this is obviously heavenly talk, right? They're speaking about angels and cherubs and this throne that has these wheels. This is not an, um, a UFO. This is the appearance of God and God choosing to show himself uh, to Ezekiel there. And let me go back to what your question was there. Fact check these hands. Um, what does Ezekiel's wheel symbolize? So again, I'm gonna have to say, I'm not sure um, what the wheels symbolize. Um, I think we could probably come up with a lot of different ideas. I think people probably have over the years, but yeah, I don't know what the wheels symbolize. Today is the stump of the pastor day with the wheels of Ezekiel. All right, so we have a question from Christopher Wright. Christopher says, is, is God's will permissive? Is God's permissive will concerning evil, things happening in the world, make him responsible for what happens considering he could have stopped it? Thanks, Pastor. Well, thank you, Christopher. I do appreciate that question. And um, here's something that we could talk about. Um, God's permissive will, meaning that God made a world and he made a world knowing that there was gonna be evil and then there was evil on the earth and then is God responsible for that? And those who are in Reformed theology believe that God determines everything and that would make God party to everything that takes place. And Christopher, I don't believe that God is responsible for this. God created a world where he gave man choice. And the choice, I believe, was because God wanted us to choose to love him. He could have made us robots that just said, God, I love you, and we could have loved him no matter what. But it's interesting, he created angels in glory and gave them a choice. He created us here on the earth, the terrestrial kingdom, and he gave us a choice. We were outside of glory, even though we were in the Garden of Eden, and we had a choice. And, and to make a choice to not follow God, to not serve God, is to make a choice to move away from his goodness because God is light, God is spirit, and God is goodness. We make a choice to be apart from him, and the end result is that when we move away from good, we move towards evil. And I think that's a result of our choice. And I don't think God is responsible for that. But I do believe that God has a purpose for evil and suffering. God created a world where there would be suffering, and then Jesus came to this world and suffered in it. God became man. He didn't leave us alone down here. He became man, and he came down to suffer with us. And he went to the brutality of the cross, where evil men maliciously had him arrested, lied about him, and crucified him. And then he went through arguably one of the greatest sufferings that you could possibly go through. Did Jesus suffer more than anyone else on earth? I don't know that we can make that argument, but I think that we can say that he suffered greatly, more than, than most people on this earth would ever suffer on that last day of his life, being scourged, being crucified, um, being put to shame as he was, but God brought about the greatest salvation this world has ever seen through this evil and suffering that Jesus went through. And God uses evil and suffering in our lives. And this is why God causes all things to work together for the good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. I don't believe the fact that God created a, that God created a world where he knew that there would be evil and suffering in it makes him culpable for the evil and suffering. That's decisions that men have made, and the end result of that has been evil. Just as God made light, you turn the light off and there is darkness. So you get away from God where there is goodness, and then there is darkness from that. All right, Christopher, very good question, by the way. I really appreciate that. All right, let's go ahead and see if we got another question here. 
I appreciate you guys being here. If you're joining us for the very first time, really glad that you're here. If you have uh, a question, then write a Thor question, and then write the question afterwards. This is also connected to our Bible studies. So if you've watched any of our studies, have any questions about them, then please feel free uh, to ask them. Um, we're going to go ahead and go over fact check these hands. We're just let's do one question at, um, per day, and then if we run out of questions, we'll come back and get your question. All right, um, fact check these hands. So, uh, but we do have a question from Andy and Tanya. They say, question, um, Matthew 24, 36, but after the, um, that day, um, but about that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, nor the son, but only the father. Why do you think that not even Jesus knew the time of the rapture? Thank you, Andy and Tanya, I, I appreciate that. When Jesus was born, he was born as a baby, right? Laying in a manger. Didn't know who he was. Didn't know all the things that he would know. He had to learn and grow. And Luke tells us that when Jesus is in, um, about the story of Jesus being in the temple as a child, it says that he grew in wisdom and understanding. So just because Jesus is fully God, fully man, I heard someone say completely God, completely man, doesn't mean that as man, he knew everything that was taking place. He limited himself on purpose by becoming a man and submitted to the will of the Father, that submission to the Father as a man. And so as a man, he did not know what the time or the hour was, but the Father knew, which means he willingly gave up information. He lowered himself and took on the form of man and took it really as the form of a man. And there's no problem, it actually reveals to us that Jesus wasn't born and then say to Mary and Joseph, mom, dad, listen, I'm God, I got things worked out. I'm a little baby, might need some help here at the start, but afterwards I've got things taken care of. No, he grew in wisdom and understanding. And it's kind of a little bit mind boggling when you think that Jesus came to a place where all of a sudden he began to understand the things that would happen, where he began to understand that he was God. I wonder what his first thoughts were. I, th I think I'm God. Jesus quoted the book of Isaiah a lot, and Isaiah has revelations of who God would be. And so I wonder if he um, actually caught those things. So that's why I believe that Jesus did not know. The quick answer, the short answer to that is, being man, he did not have access to all that he could know and that he would know when he is up in heaven. People will also ask the question, does Jesus know now? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Does Jesus up in heaven now knowing? The Bible doesn't say it. So I don't know that there's any way for us to really know whether that is the case or not. But thank you. Uh, I appreciate that, Andy and Tanya. Thank you very much. So go ahead and look for another question here. If you are new here, we want to welcome you. If you have a question, then write the word question down. Then write the word question after it. Um, I hope I don't butcher your name here. So we have a question from YouTube from Joe. Is it Jolene? I'm going to go with Jolene. Question. I was told years ago not to watch or partake in anything pertaining to the demonic realm. In doing so, your attention is, hmm, let's see. Looks like maybe we had a message sent before it was complete. Let me go down here a little bit and see if Jolene has the rest of that question. If not, I'll try. All right, let me just try to go ahead and answer that. I think what she's gonna go on to say is that if we watch anything that is demonic, we are partaking of the things that are taking place in it. Um, and I am going to say, let's see, is doing so your attention is the, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say that you and I have protection. Jesus said, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. 
The Bible says, do not give place to the enemy. And so is watching something that is demonic giving place to the enemy? I think it would be a good question to think, is it really demonic? Or is it what the world thinks demonic is? Are they talking about real demonic spirits or not? And um, I would say that I would not be of the legalistic bent that would think anytime you watch something that has demons in it, that you are giving yourself up to some kind of um, spiritual force. If anyone is in Christ, evil one cannot touch him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I just don't think that our security in Christ is that frail. I think we should, you know, be wise with what we watch, but I just don't think it's that frail. All right. So um, you could go ahead and submit the rest of that question or you, or you might here in just a couple of minutes and we will continue on. So um, so uh, Fact Checks asks, when can we do a, um, a Q&A on the marriage supper of the lamb? Um, that may be something we do in the future. Uh, I may go ahead and just do a hot topic on it and then we can talk about it after that. Um, so, um, <clears throat> Psych Man, same thing. I, I may come back and get your question depending if we have more questions. We're just looking at taking one question per person um, right now and then we'll come back. So, Joshua has a question. Joshua says, Let's get this a little bigger. I need to go in and make the font a little bigger. Hold on, let me see if I can do that really quickly. That would help me out. Let's go here. Boom, let's try that. There we go. Okay, hi, Pastor. So I wanted to know, is there any place in the Bible that talks about war? I myself want to join a team here in America that helps out other countries to keep them safe. Joshua? Thank you very much for your question. Um, well, you find war a lot in the Bible, right? You find war a lot in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and you've got the question today, a soldier joins the army and then goes over to where there's a conflict, to where there's a war and fights in that war and ends up killing people uh, that is in that war. Is that justified or not? And the answer to that is tough. kind of like a, I don't know. It depends on the war. It depends on the cause. It depends on what you're doing. I believe that a soldier goes into battle and takes orders from who he is ordered to, to do things. And that there can be an objection if he feels that this order is not correct. And there have been orders that have been given um, Vietnam comes to mind specifically, that soldier said, no, I won't do that. They disobeyed the orders and they weren't court-martialed because of the orders that they were given. So I think it would all depend on what the battle is about. You certainly don't want to find yourself in the midst of a battle and something that is unjust on the wrong side or doing something that would be wrong. But the Bible does not say anything about being a soldier. In fact, um, when John the Baptist was asked by a soldier, what should I do? He said, don't take anything from him and don't from, take anything from people and do, and, and, and do what is just. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along those lines. So I don't know that God would say that you can't be a soldier. I just think you want to make sure you're fighting for a real good and just cause. It's a good thing to defend the innocent. It's a good thing to defend those that are being taken advantage of. All right, Joshua, I really do appreciate that. All right, yeah, I see that Jolene says, yeah, it was, um, it was too long. Yeah, YouTube restricts how long your questions can be. Facebook does not. So you can type out big old long questions on Facebook. So Jolene's question was cut off um, about the demonic forces that were out there. Um, we have another one from Christopher Wright. Um, and let's go and bring these in. We'll start, we'll, we'll start backtracking a little bit. If you have a question, then you can write the word question down Then you can read out the, the question and um, we'll, take, we'll take a look at them. Make sure that they make sense. What is Luke twenty two thirty six talking about in context? All right, well, let's take a look at that. <clears throat> 
Uh, Christopher? Let's pull it up on the screen. Luke 22, 36. Sorry, this is clunky. I'm working on not being clunky, but I'm failing by what I'm bringing on. Pretty soon we'll get it. All right, 3236. All right, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. Um, yeah. Okay. So this is what, um, let's start in 35. This is Luke 22, 35, and we'll go from there. And he said, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bags, knapsacks, and sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has a sword, let him sell the garment and buy one. For I say to you, that which, uh, that this which is written must be accomplished in me. All right. So the um, this passage in context is after Jesus had sent out his disciples earlier, he had told them, don't take any money with you and don't take any swords with you. Don't take any weapons with you and just go from city to city. But now he's retracting that. That was a different time during the ministry of the Messiah on the earth. And he says, now go ahead and take your weapons with you and now go ahead and take your money bags. And in another place, one of the disciples, it may be here, um, one of the disciples say, yeah, it is here. I'm going to go ahead and put that back up on the screen for you. So one of the disciples said, um, so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough, which cracks me up. Jesus is like, yeah, that's enough. His whole point was that you're going to have to prepare now. They might have thought, and I'm glad that he corrects this, because if he didn't, then we would have this debate as to whether or not we should have money, we'd use money, whether or not we should arm ourselves for self-defense. We would have those kind of questions when we don't have those questions now because Jesus clarified that. So he's retracting what he said earlier so that we will all be ready to go out into the world, do the work that God's called us to do as those uh, who are his and live wholeheartedly for him. All right. So while we have a question here and I'll just pick it up from here, fact check these hands. Um, Question, best way to witness to people believe in a, who believe in a higher power, but don't believe they can have a personal relationship with him. So that's kind of the deist idea that God created the world and kind of is letting it go. Um, first of all, I think that we want to be led by the Holy Spirit when we witness. Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1.8 to tarry in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Formulas are problematic. And I know there's whole ministries that like to use formulas. The way of the master is one of them. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying we want to be led by the Spirit. And so if I'm talking to someone and they say to me, well, I believe in a higher power. I just don't believe it's Jesus. I don't believe it's, it's, it's God. I don't think we can know him. What I want to do is listen to them. I want to really hear them. The Bible says, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. So when I'm witnessing, I don't want to ever get fired up by anything anybody says. And I want to really understand it. So much so that I even repeat it to them. I, and I'm asking more questions. Who do you think he is? Do you think he's the creator? Um, I'm just trying to ask questions and gain what they are saying. And then I repeat it back to them. My goal in repeating it back to them is that they would go, yeah, that they wouldn't see me building a strong man that I could tear down easily, but that they would go, yeah. And once I've heard them and really heard them, then being led by the spirit to respond about the personalness of God or what might work in that situation. If we were able to come up with formulas for each situation, I don't know if that that would be as effective as being led by the spirit when you are when and, and sometimes you say, well, I tried to witness. It just wasn't effective. Well, not everyone's going to be saved. We water, we sow and God adds the increase. So we want to be led by the spirit and not just try to come up with certain answers that might be able to actually, you know, get someone saved. Like I've got the secret to by, by which you can get saved. 
All right. So thank you. Um, we have a question from, I think it's the Apache. Uh, question, at what point do Christians, as Christians, do we stop the, um, the godless communists? They seem hell-bent on conquest. What does God say? All right, the Apache, is that right? It sounds kind of like an Apache question that you're asking. Um, at what point do we, do Christians stop the godless uh, communists? Um, I don't know that we do. We don't. We preach the gospel. We've been called by Christ to go out into all the world and make disciples. And that's in communist nations as well as in free nations that we're living in. I think we, we need to identify that we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission was to go out and make disciples of all nations. In, John, in, in Mark chapter 13, preach the gospel to every creature. And so this is our call. This is what it's about. Jesus could have fought the Romans. Think about it. The Romans were massively unfair in the provinces. They, they were causing poverty by their taxes. And so the people hated it. And had Jesus decided to fight against them, I think that he would have had a crowd. He would have had people who would have said, yeah, let's go out and attack them. But he didn't do it. He stayed true to what his call was, even when he was pushed about some whose blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Jesus didn't go out and begin to do political things. So we are called to love. We are called to live for him. I believe that you can protect yourself, but my desire is not to overthrow any government. I do want to protect the weak, and I, I'm hoping that we are able to do that. Uh, but as far as overthrowing the socialists that we have today, I don't know that that will ever happen, Apache or that we are supposed to. All right, so thank you very much. We have a question from Empress Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Good to have you here. Are progressive pastors false teachers? And why do they ignore God's word? And the answer to that would be yes, and um, because it doesn't serve their purposes. So think about your two questions. First of all, are progressive teachers false teachers? Yes. They are denying the word of God. They want to look within themselves. Um, and I realize I'm painting with a really broad brush and you might be able to go to someone and say, well, this person isn't saying that. But when you go on and look at what these guys are saying, they're kind of like the liberal Christianity in the early 1900s in that they are denying miracles. They're denying the resurrection and they're denying the word of God. To them, the word of God was written to a culture that's not us, in an original language that wasn't written for us. And so they're trying to progress, thus progressive Christianity. They're progressing to a point where they believe that they're able to search their hearts. But what they end up doing is making Christianity kind of like the secular world, believing what the culture says instead of standing against the culture and standing fast to be able to do the things that God calls each one of us to do. So yes, progressive teachers are false teachers and they're teaching false teachings and they don't, the word of God is not their authority. And if it was their authority, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation uh, about progressive Christi uh, Christians because they would believe in what is, what is the, the real and genuine authority uh, that is in Christ. All right. So thank you very much. Um, let's see, did I pass a question? I don't think I did. All right, uh, so good to see you guys. We have a question from Brendan. Brendan says, question, I've heard that when Paul talks about head coverings for women, 2 Corinthians 11, I think, it was something cultural, therefore not something we need to do and observe. Why should culture have any weight on what we do or don't do since we aren't conformed to this world? All right, Brandon, good question. So as far as the culture of our day, we are not, we are not to be conformed to this world. We to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as you quoted there. And so, but 
there are certain things in our culture in the way we interact with one another that our culture ends up demanding. There are certain things that we say today because it's right in our culture. And when the New Testament was written, women covered their heads as a symbol of being under authority to those that they were under authority to. And in the Corinthian church, this was very important. And I think it might've been important because there were, there was a temple of Diana in Corinth and the temple prostitutes came down and had their heads uncovered. And so Paul seems to be upset when you read that chapter that there are some women that are coming in without their heads covered and just kind of shirking the authority. And maybe because of the temple prostitutes that are there in that city, Paul is writing and saying, you might as well just go ahead and shave your hair off. He says the hair of a, the, the hair, the, the glory of man is woman and the glory of the woman is her hair. And so taking down your hair, as far as I understand it, was a symbol of what you would do for your husband, that he would be able to see your glory, that he would be able to see your beauty. And so you put your hair up and you put a covering on it in order to cover that a sign that you were under the authority of your father or under the authority of your husband. We will, um, we can go to it and read it um, at another time when we've got a little bit more time. We got just a few minutes left in this Q&A, but we can go to it and read it. But your real question is, why does culture have anything to do with it? And culture today is going to dictate some things that you do and don't do. We do things today because it's our culture to do, to do them. And even though we might call them politically correct, we end up with certain things that we do and won't do in culture. And our culture is going to reflect our writings later on. We're able to understand things that are written in our culture because there's things in our culture that we understand. And there's going to be things in the future, if the Lord tarries, that people are going to find from our culture and they're going to say, well, you've got to understand. In 2022, this was the culture and this is why they wrote that. Because it makes sense in our culture, but it doesn't make sense out of it. And there's some of that in the Bible where it is definitely cultural. When it talks about braiding your hair, nothing wrong with braiding your hair, but culture culturally in their day, especially in that city, there was something significant about braiding your hair. The Bible says, give one another a holy kiss. That's not our culture. It's kind of a culture in Europe to some degree, where you might see men, especially in Italy, you know, peck each other on the cheek, but that's not what we do here in America. And uh, I, I've, I've had, I had a guy that was coming up and, and, and kissing me on the cheek and I learned to guard from him pretty, pretty quickly because I didn't like it at all, because that's not our culture. So I do think that cultures do come into play and you've got to know the culture. So much Bible study comes down to looking over different things and seeing the cultures uh, that are there. All right. So um, thank you for your question. I do appreciate that and good to have you here with us, Brandon. Uh, we have another question from Diana. Diana says, uh, if we are saved by accepting Jesus, why did Jesus not say, not all who say, Lord, Lord, enter heaven? Also, the virgins turned away because they didn't have enough oil. All right, so two questions there. If we're saved by accepting Jesus, then why does some say, Lord, Lord, not enter into the kingdom? Because accepting Jesus, the Bible says in John 1, 12, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God, to those who believe in his name. It's not just saying, I accept Jesus or I receive Jesus. You believe in his name. You believe him. You believe him enough that you surrender your life to him, that you start to live for him. You say, Lord, forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead and, I, and I'm, I'm living for you. And then you are transformed. But you can go through that experience. You can go through an experience where you think you're a Christian, for example, people who go to church. They can think they're a Christian, so they say, Lord, Lord, but they've never accepted Jesus. They've never accepted him in the sense you're talking about, where you are transformed and born again. Maybe they're in a church, they call him Lord, but they haven't truly been born again. Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's possible for you to think you're a Christian and not really be a Christian. And that is what that passage is really telling us about. 
and we want to make sure that we are genuinely saved. It says in 2 Corinthians to examine yourself and make sure that you're in the faith. Make sure you are really born again, that you don't think you're a Christian when you are not a Christian. But I don't think that that passage is telling us that there are those who have believed, have received him, have accepted him, and that now are not saved or that weren't saved when they went through the process of what it takes to be saved. And what it takes to be saved is by faith, receiving the grace of God. God saves you by grace and by faith you receive it. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will not die. And if you believe and do die, you shall live. And God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we must have our spirits brought to life and, and, um, and come back to him. So also the virgins who were turned away because they didn't have enough oil. So that is a type of genuine faith that you can look like a Christian, but do you really have the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit is represented often in the Bible by oil. So do you really have the Holy Spirit? Even in the end of the world, when you're looking like you belong to Christ, there are those who are not genuine. So it's the exact same principle, um, Diana, as those who say, Lord, Lord, and don't enter in. You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready by having your relationship right with him. Jesus said, be ready. You don't know the hour that I'm returning. So you get ready by accepting him as your savior, beginning to live for him, beginning to be committed to him uh, wholeheartedly. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. We have another question from John. John, good to see you. Good to have you here on the program with us. So um, John says in Jeremiah 1.5, God told Jeremiah that he knew him before he knit in, was knit in the womb. Does this support that our spirit was created and in heaven before it was joined to our physical body? Is this a false teaching or simply a gray area of contention? All right, John, well, that's an interesting question. Um, let me go ahead. Let me give you just a little bit of thought as I kind of talk through this here a little bit. So um, I knew you before he was knit, um, that he knew him before he was knit in the womb. So I would say, John, I don't think that's creation lingo. I think knowing him means that he knew who he was. He knew who he was going to create that God foreknew who he was going to be. And um, then that he formed him before he knit him in the womb or formed him in the womb. So I don't think it supports the spirit that was created um, and in heaven and then was joined to our physical bodies. Uh, that's interesting that you found a passage that talks about that because I'll talk about the guy that I debated in, in Jerusalem who said that spirits were created beforehand and I call that an ad hoc argument because he had no evidence for it. He was just coming up with it. And it would seem like this could be a verse that someone could use for that. So um, I knew you before you were knit in the womb. I want to go look at this passage here real quick. I want to see exactly what it says. So let's uh, take a look. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you here in just a moment. So we're going to go to Jeremiah. Let me find Jeremiah here. All right, Jeremiah. And it's Jeremiah 1.5. All right, 1.5. So I'm going to put this up on the screen and let's take a look at it. So um, let's just go back a little bit. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So I don't think he's saying that he knew him I would say that he's not saying that he knew him in a sense that he was around and could have a relationship with him and knew him. I think he's saying, I knew before I knew you, before you were in the womb, God foreknew us, um, that God has been thinking about us since before eternity. I was trying to think of a couple other passages that talk about that, right? Um, that God, that God predestined us before the foundations of the earth. So I think I would take formed you and knew you as being not knew you as in created you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, which would be in the womb. I ordained you a prophet to the nations 
Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I'm a youth. And so then he goes on to talk about those things. Um, interesting, interesting passage, John, uh, to be able to look at. Um, I'm going to say, I think, no, it's not saying, I think there would have to be another passage somewhere that would say it more clearly, because this can be, I knew you, but God foreknows someone, and, and that would be the case. But I appreciate it, John, and thank you for being here with us. Um, it's five o'clock now, and we have a service in exactly one hour, and we are going to be in the book of Galatians. It's also communion, so if you want to join us, you could even join us online, get your communion stuff ready. We'll lead you in communion, and then we'll be in the book of Galatians. Um, we'll be looking at the liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ, and how we can use that to overcome sin. We're also going to see very clearly that Paul, once again, condemns the idea that you can have any kind of works that you think would save you. All right, so God bless you guys. It's really good to see you. I um, have enjoyed the time spending here. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, if you have a question about the study tonight, remember, you can log into YouTube, into Calvary Tucson's page, and you can ask a question on any video. So if you have a question about the study tonight, or you have a question that you want to, to get answered in one of these videos, you can log in, ask the question, and then we'll go ahead and take a look at them uh, if we get a chance. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm out. And so we will see you later on. Stay close to Jesus.